Just a quick note before we jump into this episode. This summer, Dan and I will be taking a break. We'll spend time with our families and attend workshops and conferences to continue growing as leadership educators. Thanks for listening to this episode, and we invite you to check out some more you might have missed during the year or revisit some of your favorites. Welcome to the Leadership Educator Podcast. I'm Dan Jenkins, Chair and Associate Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And we are both thrilled about today's episode of the podcast with NDSL Special Issue Co-Editors, Megan R. Kendall, Associate Professor of Engineering Education and Leadership at the University of Texas, El Paso, who's also serving as the Graduate Program Director and Acting Chair, and Cindy Rotman, Associate Director of Research at Troost. I lead at the University of Toronto and Division Chair for Engineering Leadership Development Division of ASEE, the American Society of Engineering Education. Woo, that was a mouthful. Y'all are some amazing ladies. I love it. Um, so they recently edited volume 2022, issue number 173, released in the winter, entitled The Special Issue Student Leadership Development in Engineering. And just to give our audience some uh, perspective, if you've listened to our past episodes, anything since February of 2021, you've heard NDSL issues sprinkled throughout our, our catalog. Um, we were already informally talking to folks who were uh, co-editing these issues. And then Dr. Susan Comavez and Kathy Guthrie said, hey, can we formalize this partnership? And so we said, yeah, of course, we're, we're already doing it. It benefits us both. Um, we love the research. We love hearing the, not just the stories behind the, the articles and, and the journals, but also kind of what are some of those insights. And we found it incredibly valuable. Our listeners find it invaluable. Um, and so since those first episodes aired in February of 2021, We've invited guest editors, including Drs. Mark Hurwitz and Rachel Thompson. They talked about uh, followership education. We had Drs. Krista Soria and Matt Thompson come on and talk about evidence-based practices and leadership development. And we had Dr. Sonia Artwan talk about leadership learning and social class. And then Dr. Jasmine Collins and Rich Whitney came in to discuss racial equity and leadership. If you have not listened to those episodes, please go back in our catalog. They're clearly labeled in DSL um, and they're all really important um, conversations to hear. With that said, we'd like to welcome y'all to our show. Welcome Megan and Cindy. Thank you. So Megan and Cindy, what are, let's give, give our listeners an opportunity to get to know y'all just a little bit better. So in addition to the uh, long titles that Lauren read off, what, what's maybe a couple of things uh, about yourself that you might not find in your bios on your department homepages or on LinkedIn, maybe something you, you love to do or, or, or what have you? What's, what's the first thing that jumps into your mind? Megan, do you, you want to start and then Cindy? Sure. Um, so I am an engineer by training. All of my degrees are in engineering. And so 
many of us find we need an outlet outside of our engineering that kind of appeals to our engineering, but also our creativity. And so for me, it's quilting. I uh, recently took up quilting a couple of years ago and entered my first quilt in a show, um, did all the piecing, did all the, the free motion quilting on the top and was able to enter it and go and see it hanging up at the show. And so that's one little known fact about me. Wait, you're a competitive quilter? Working on it. It's <laughs> amazing. That's a first for us. How cool. You've got to check out. So I remember seeing this because Florida State, where I did my undergrad, and I did a theater class one semester, like intro to theater that met some requirement. But love the theater anyway. But so that was a nice elective to take. But they put on a musical called Quilters. It's literally about these like pioneer women that were quilters. And there's like, you can look, there's music, there's a soundtrack. It, it's really, it was really something else. And I, I don't know why that just jumped in my head because of, of what you shared. And so I just had to Google it really quick and like, yep, that still exists. And uh, it's based on a book all about the lives of pioneer women who quilted. <laughs> and everybody was decked out in like quilted like dresses and like the whole thing. I just remember the visual like because it was striking. <laughs> so very random. I'll have to go check that out. That <laughs> yeah, really check cool. it out. <laughs> might be right up your alley. You might, might have found your new favorite musical. So, all right, Cindy, what about you? I don't know. I used to write um, angsty poetry as a child, but nobody needs to know that. Um, I did want to start <laughs> just by locating myself, not just organizationally, but I think sociopolitically as well. I think that's important. Um, I'm speaking to you from the land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and the Mississaugas of the Credit. And I think when we talk about leadership, it's important. I'm, I'm also an intense, serious person, you might notice. So I, I don't quilt, but <laughs> it kind of goes with the angsty poetry. But I think that um, we need to locate ourselves as a settler to the land. Um, I think that I, it is, I have more affordances to lead. I have more supports to lead. I have fewer barriers that I am required to tear down. The sort of systems of oppression in our society make it easier in some ways for me to lead than others. So I, I like to start with that. And the other thing that um, is probably relevant to this, this uh, source book is that I am not an engineer. I, uh, my background is in education. I started as a math and science teacher and, um, and then did a PhD in educational leadership, studying uh, social justice activism as leadership. So that's that's my entry point. Can I ask a little bit about how you got into engineering specifically? Yeah, I mean, as a so my father's an engineer. So from infancy, I was like hammering nails and building things in the backyard. Um, but it was one of these kind of life path things. So I was, I was a professor in education um, at the University of Manitoba. And then I, my family and my partner and everybody in my life was, was back in Toronto. And so I came back home. I just changed my career. Um, and there was a job posting for engineering leadership research. And and my partner said, what are you talking? <laughs> You're completely unqualified for this. What are you doing? And so I said, well, it looks like they're actually looking for somebody with a social science background. Um, so let me give it a try. And it was a really fun conversation. Um, and I found this kind of little hub where there are a whole bunch of people with um, adult education and student affairs backgrounds um, working in engineering. Oh, that sounds like a, a and that was about a decade ago. So now I feel like a little bit more legit and credible in engineering education, but um, yeah, but I, I'm not an engineer. I, I thought about it, but I, I heard some of the songs and I, they, they, didn't, they didn't speak to me. So, so I went in another direction. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Thank you for, too for the, the socio location you said. Um, I appreciate that. 
it, it gives, I think it gives folks insight as well as it's nice to hear where folks are and, and you know, where they're coming from. I will also share. So both Dan and I, our dads are actually engineers too. So my dad was an industrial engineer. So when we go to the supermarket, he's looking at like how many, you know, you know, boxes of cereal can you get on a shelf? And if you have 10 shelves and 10 aisles, like he's in there and he's like 72, still doing that math. And I'm like, dad, let's just go get some coffee. Like, let's, let's bring it down. You don't, they don't need your help planning. Like you're okay. Um, but also I think about, uh, I, his engineering background didn't rub off on me. I like computers and math too, but nobody told me that there was this thing out there. So I feel like had I known about engineering, I might've been an engineer. Um, I also feel the same way about psychology too. Like had I known you could have these conversations and understand how people work, I might've fallen into those categories. But I say all that to say, um, the cool thing about New Directions is they explore so many different topics for leadership educators. There's not just one lane they live in. And so I love seeing this idea of engineering um, as well as the continued theme of balancing theory and practice, making it useful for all that read the journal. Um, so a lot of our, our audience there uh, professors, but there are also student affairs personnel. Um, we have some folks that have like training and development backgrounds. So all of these things really help. Um, there's something you can take away from every episode. Um, so we know you have your backgrounds, but how did you get to being co-editors together on this issue of leadership development and engineering? It's a fun story, I think. Um, so Cindy and I had been working together previously um, we are both, I am past division chair and she is current division chair. And previous to that, we were program chairs taking care of the conference activities for our division of ASEE, American Society for Engineering Education. Um, and so we've been building this network and getting to know all the people within the uh, research space, but also the practice and teaching leadership development space for engineers. And so a couple of years ago, Susan reached out and asked me actually if I'd be interested in editing a series on STEM leadership development. And at the time, I was overwhelmed. There was no way I had enough time, i.e. COVID. Um, we were in the midst of COVID and I, I told her, I think this sounds really cool, but I have, I'm concerned about my availability, so I need some help. And number two, I actually think we need to focus on engineering leadership, not STEM leadership broadly, still contextualize it within STEM, but recognize there's a lot of work and a lot of emphasis on engineering leadership specifically. And so I, I kind of pushed back and I said, let's do an issue on engineering leadership. And I know the perfect person to work with on this. And so I reached out to Cindy um, and, and because of those networks and the work that we had done within the division together, I knew that it was gonna be a successful partnership. Um, and so that brought us together when we were able to really get to work on the issue and really begin to see how we could better support our division and the community at large, understand kind of the foundations of where engineering leadership development really is at the moment. And like you said, connect the theory and the research with some practice to help those people that are still either just brand new graduate students, or maybe their faculty, they're wanting to do something different in their classroom, or maybe they're a program director, because there are a bunch of these engineering leadership programs starting, and we wanted to provide a way for them to have kind of a one-stop shop, a starting point to find the resources and information of where the community is at to get going so that they can push it even further. 
can allow just one tiny piece, which is, well, first of all, Megan's a joy to work with, but also um, this relationship began with a drink ticket, two drink tickets. We were at our social and uh, Megan is excellent at tapping people and mentoring people and building community. And so she sort of had these drink tickets in hand. I don't know, I guess that was her role at the time. She had, she had a social role and uh, she planned the social. And so she kind of handed them out and then we'd have a conversation. Oh, would you like to get involved? And so um, I don't, you know, it wasn't the drink, it was the conversation that actually brought me there, but it was really, um, it, it's been one of the most um, positive working relationships I've had definitely over my career. So then you bring up something that we see a lot in these conversations, serendipity, like the, you know, the, the moment that, you know, people come together to do great work is something like I needed, you know, a drink or she was handing out tickets and I just, we said hi and, and it would went on from there. And it's something that is so important. Um, however, like you can't plan it or it just happens. So I love that y'all shared that story. Absolutely. It's that whole, the timing was right. And we recognized the opportunity because the community itself was at that point, they were like, we need this book. Susan happened to reach out at just the right time that she was able to say, Hey, do you want to write a book? And we were like, yes, because we need it. And Cindy and I were at that point where we had the network and, and we just, the outline just popped into our brains. It was like, Ooh, we could get this person for this and this person for this. And like that outline out of the community that was growing already, it just fell into place. So, and not a single, I think we had one chapter where we had to go scrounge for authors one or two chapters that we struggled to find authors on. Otherwise, the people we asked to work on certain chapters just immediately said yes, because they were so excited to be a part of it and knew how important this was going to be for our community. Love that. Yeah, I mean, it's always one of the interesting things about how the, these uh, edit, editorial relationships come about. And Susan and Kathy are oftentimes really, really good about pairing folks together that sometimes uh, you would think are misfits, um, or sometimes it's folks that have just worked together for, you know, for decades or more. And but they have just this keen, keen way of advancing the, the field and the community of practice through putting these uh, editorial teams together. And of course, it's and two, it's the networks of the editorial teams that, you know, really pro proliferate these great issues. And um, this is definitely, definitely one of them because it's a significantly underexplored area of leadership education. The STEM fields, you know, a lot of leadership development is not as well, I guess, publicized as being part of some of these programs. But I think that has certainly changed quite a bit over the last uh, decade or so, and, and perhaps maybe even more so in the last 20 years or so. You know, as as uh, as Lauren mentioned, uh, I'm also the recovering child of a father engineer, and um, <laughs> my my dad recently uh, retired from his career. So he was a chemical engineer, worked in the power industry, and um, he was down here visiting, or excuse me, up here uh, visiting from Florida in Maine uh, to get away from some of the heat, although it's so hot everywhere right now. Um, but we were talking a little bit about his uh, educational experiences. So he, he was at University of South Florida in the 70s. And he said, you know, it was so much knowledge acquisition, not much team-based learning. He's like, he's like, my memories are studying for tests you know, cramming those books, getting the vocabulary and the methods and the, and the processes and the, and the science, uh, but not really doing much, much work with, uh, with other students. 
Um, but I understand, you know, again, this is that's that's evolved. Um, I had a great friend from high school who was uh, an active competitor while an undergrad at University of Florida's uh, steel bridge competition. So she was a civil engineer or is a civil engineer. And that would have been like 2000, 2001, I think was around that time. And she just loved it. She was always talking about, you know, these bridge competitions. And so like that was I don't know how long they've been doing that, um, but it's one of these things that like, let's find an outlet and promote team-based learning. And you're going immediately, what do you do when you graduate as an engineer? You're going to work on a team with other people. Like you're building a power plant, you're building a bridge, you're building a sewage system, you're creating a, a, a highway. I mean, whatever it is. And so like, why aren't we, why isn't there more intentional team-based learning and engineering education and, and in some of the STEM fields? I know it's an issue in healthcare and other things, but we're not talking about that today. But one of the chapters in your issue uh, was on team leadership and engineering education. And I, and I was, that's the first thing I looked for because of my own experience and thinking about that. And so that was by, uh, let's see, Kim Graves, uh, Wolfenbarger. And um, what what is, from y'all's perspective, like what is that story and how integral is team leadership to developing leaders and engineering programs? I have many colleagues who study teams. I'm, I'm not among them, but I do think um, one of the things when we went out and um, interviewed sort of senior engineers in industry, um, they were saying a little bit of, Dan, what you were saying as well, that, um, you know, a long while back, um, engineering wasn't taught in this kind of way. Um, leadership and teamwork weren't sort of deliberately taught. And I think maybe over the last um, two to three decades, it's become part of um, engineering education. And one of the reasons it's become a part of engineering education, it's because it's always been a part of engineering practice. Engineers don't work by themselves. They always work in teams. It's, uh, it's almost impossible to do engineering work without um, imagining yourself as a member of a team. And in fact, one of the reasons we found that engineers sometimes um, resist the idea of leadership is because they are taught to conceptualize leadership as like the man on the hill with the horse in a very individualistic way and they view themselves as team players so it's never sort of challenging to figure out like how um how can we help them think of themselves as team players because they are already do i think what some of my colleagues so my colleague trisha sheridan does this work kim uh, wolfenbarger um does this work and so many other people do it's that um you can't just put people on a team and say, we've given them practice, therefore they know how to work with one another. <laughs> there are like relationship skills to build. There, um, there are more, there's more than a set of tasks that people staple together and hand over the fence. There's, um, you have to deal with conflict. And I think over time, there've been sort of tools introduced and also deliberate teaching about, you know, forming, storming, norming, like that kind of thing about teams, but not just the processes, but also what happens when things don't go well? How do you interact with one another? How can you support each other? How can you do teams in isolation as we've had to do with COVID? Um, so while I'm not an expert, I can definitely see that when engineers talk about leadership, they're talking about teams. It's almost the two that you can't talk about leadership without talking about, about teams. That group and team dynamic sounds like it comes right to the surface in the conversation and, and that they know they should, but maybe you're missing the nuances of how to actually, you know, what behaviors or what, what actions define that leadership or yeah, group dynamics. formally learned. It just doesn't, doesn't just happen, right? The way thermodynamics doesn't just happen either. It's got to learn it. So there are many things that, that have to be learned and that can be supported instead of just sort of letting people um, try it out and see what happens, sink or swim. Yeah. And, and I love that you, you focused on that and, and getting beyond the surface level of 
teaming in uh, in engineering because, and we've we've probably uh, beat this particular topic in some of our previous episodes. But you know, just counting off students by fours and putting them in, on teams does not make a team. You know, it's it's what what are some of the intentional developmental things that you can do and give students those skills to be successful in their teams, whether it's just giving them uh, you know templates or prompts for having conversations with each other, learning about the diverse experiences that they bring, you know, doing, you know, uh, what was the one that Lauren, that somebody was like um, doing like personal resume sharing that one of our guests. Oh, group. Yeah. Group resumes. They said you put people together in a group and have them write down their like involvement and skills and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's just one of the many, you know, there's dozens and dozens of things that you can do with students to get them, you know, sometimes it's taking them a Myers-Briggs or a Strengths Finder or something like that, just to get them to talk about some of the diverse things that, that they bring. But otherwise it's just like, okay, well, who's going to write the paper? Who's going to do the, blah, 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 who's going to, you know, give the presentation. And it's like, no, that, that like, this is so, that's so task focused and getting, you know, not just, folks in the STEM fields, but just getting everybody out of that mindset of like, no, it's not just about who, what do we need to get done? It's about what can we learn about each other throughout that process that's actually going to contribute to us working better. And then ideally in the future, next time you're on a team, you've got that those skill sets and you can stop the group and, and make sure that that is a part of the team building process and a part of the process of getting the work done as well. Yeah. So, and there's something about social roles and teams that also yeah. are- Engineering, there's something about the demographics, which, um, you know, in Ontario, where I live, um, only between 16 to 18, we're trying to aim for 30 by 2030% of engineers are cisgender women. So um, so when you're placing people on team, people say, oh, let's distribute one woman in each team. And that, that's not particularly helpful um, when you're thinking about equity or especially also depending on how um, the racial makeup of your team, like try to not have anybody be the only one. And also think about how those roles are distributed so that everybody gets to do the sort of agentic work. Everybody gets to do the calculating work. Everybody gets to do the reporting everybody um just to make sure that people you know even if everybody gets to be in engineering not everybody's experience in engineering is the same and the um assigning people into teams thoughtfully (laughs) can often be really really helpful you know i love that you shared that because it, it it almost flows into any you know space like i teach leadership and and i teach a leading groups and team building class and it's open to anybody across the university and and my students often think if they're public relations students everybody in there is pr but i end up with engineering um you know sport and rec management uh and all different spaces but what you said is is still the same you know you can't assume that you know how people visibly present or how you you assume their visible presentation is accurate. And you also have to think about what are those specific roles. And when I started teaching in 2012, I could just throw students in a group and it wasn't a problem. And now it's more or less like it's this mixture of me putting folks in a group, but then also like we do a speed dating and I have them ask questions that they should be asking when they join any group. Like, how do you work? What's your communication preference? And, and you know, I run down this list and I, they go around, they do their speed dating, and then I make them write down the people that they talk to and why they think that person why they would pair well. And it's not just, I like them or I work with them before. It's, you know, they said that they're more of a, a, like a task or type A person. And and I know I'm more of a creative free thinker and it gets them to think about how they intentionally are joining those spaces rather than, well, I'm the only woman in the group, or I'm the only person of color in this group. And every group's got to have a person of color. And, but it's something that when they get to work, they can ask those same questions when they start working with a group. And I tell them, don't be corny. 
and, and say, well, my teacher told me in class, these are the five questions I got to ask. You got to figure out what that language is like for you, but like, you got to get this information for groups. So I love, I love hearing that for sure. When I was looking through the book, one of the things that I loved was this idea of socio-technical innovations, right? Okay, Megan, I see you're excited. So can you, can you share that? And then I have a quick follow-up once you kind of share that concept, like, where did that come from? Like, how do you define it for those that aren't familiar? So the socio-technical innovation piece of things is yes, throughout the book, it's this recognition that like, as engineers, we've gone way beyond in this idea of like, I'm just going to solve this technical problem. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to hand it off and let the business folks, the PR folks, the whoever else deal with the impact. Here's my technology go. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We're, it's, we're really getting to that point where we recognize there's a lot of detrimental impacts as a result of that type of an approach to innovation and, and the use of engineering knowledge and skills. And so this idea of socio-technical is recognizing like the problems that we face now and in the future and have been in the past, let's, on, let's be honest, they have a social component. People and other beings are impacted by the technology that we're creating. And for too long, our approach to engineering education has been focused on the technical. And so now it's getting to this point that we're recognizing we can't just focus on the technical. We really have to explicitly include the social aspects in the very way we teach, but also the types of problems that we're encouraging our students to solve, the approaches that we're teaching them in their design processes, and ultimately recognizing that's what they're going to be leading as engineers. Ultimately, once they're out in their careers, they're going to be helping our world solve these problems, lack of access to clean water, things like that. Like that's not going to be a solely technical solution. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of what we're trying to do in our leadership programs is to begin to prepare our students to think about the types of questions and the stakeholders and the impacts that their work is going to have. Yeah, their students, a lot of this may not have that lasting impact while they're still in school, but we have to start now. Otherwise they, decom they compartmentalize it and they see it as others and other, and they, they stick to the technical because that's what quote unquote engineers are supposed to do. Yeah. Um, and so for the work that uh, Cindy and I have been working on is recognizing most of the definitions that the, we have seen for engineering leadership don't always embrace the socio-technical nature of the work engineers are having to do. Mm -hmm. And so we've been very intentional trying to recognize that piece in how we even define engineering leadership so that it's not just this idea of taking management philosophies and approaches, organizational psychology type definitions of leadership, and then the technical traditional definitions of leadership that come out of engineering and try to mash them together and hope for the best. But recognizing like we need an intentional definition of engineering leadership that actually recognizes that intersection as more and recognizes that it's the impact. It's recognizing that impact on diverse populations. Yes, the economy, but all of them. 
Yeah. So I, 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 oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Cindy. Yeah, just we're also building on a foundation of knowledge that has been have spoken about. Um, so Aaron Sack and Donna Riley and Wendy Faulkner and many others have spoken about uh, a socio-technical dualism within engineering. So if we teach in such a way that the social and the technical are separable and that one is uh, superior to the other, then we're actually not doing our students any favors because the profession of engineering has always been socio-technical. So if we teach them as though it is possible to separate the technical from the um, social, they'll go out and say, oh, the work I'm doing is not real engineering, whereas <laughs> all real engineering, in fact, is both. So one problem is that they don't necessarily get the, that challenge to make the school to work transition. But the other, and this is what all those um, authors have spoken about, is that by making this into a dualistic um, and inequitable kind of set of concepts, we actually make the um, field less inclusive, which might, if we, we can look beyond sort of recruitment and retention, but um, as number counting, but if this concept exists, it'll make it less pleasant um, in terms of organizational culture and, and social culture and professional culture for people to feel like they belong a wider diversity of, and I also mean just like conceptual diversity of, of people to feel like they are actually engineers. Um, so by by deliberately saying engineering is and has always been socio-technical, let's think of it that way, let's develop engineering students that way. Um, we're helping them uh, make greater impact as professionals in whatever they, they do. And we're also honoring uh, more, more aspects of themselves and the profession. I, I love the like intentionality and depth in which you're you're not just thinking about like the like that knowledge acquisition Dan talked about his dad went through and you're really thinking about we want to make not just good engineers but good people who can go out and address some of these challenges you know and it runs very parallel to adaptive leadership where you know like the technical pieces you have solutions you have you have problems and they're clear solutions. Whereas with that adaptive piece, you're running into new challenges and you've got to figure out how do we work together? How do we all contribute? How do we assert ourselves in a way where we are in these spaces and we feel like we can bring that conceptual diversity to that space and we're not um, outed or excluded because we maybe not, we maybe don't identify. So I love that y'all talk about that. It stood out to me. I um, appreciate too that, um, you're encouraging it and showing it in a very physical nature. So sometimes these concepts are, are in, I don't wanna say outer space, but I always say in the clouds, meaning I can talk about technical adaptive, but when you give someone a case study and say, well, this park bench has certain a certain structure that doesn't allow homeless people to lay down on this park bench, or you build these steps in a way where homeless people can't settle in these spaces, or you build your building and there are nooks where people can hide and, and possibly you know violently attack. You know, I, I hate to think like that, but that is a very, um, big problem that we have now. And so by integrating into their learning, it becomes second nature. Um, my old question though is, and I find this sometimes with my students, we, we teach them these things and then they get out into the world and their leaders haven't been taught that. So are, are y'all uh, having the conversation that kind of and I don't want to say ensures, but are you having the conversation to kind of ensure that when they get in the workplace, this is what's trending, or this is what people are talking about, or this is what they'll see? Um, or are you saying to the students, you might not see this for 10 years because your leaders might not be there yet, but trust, we, we very much know it's going to be in place. Are y'all having those conversations or seeing that? Yeah. And maybe I'll let Megan, unmuting. I, I was going to say, it's, it's more the latter, I think, in a lot of the programs. Um, the recognition that 
you may not see this in the people around you. And so we spend a lot of time working on um, supporting our students in their discovery of the value of this so that it's not just something that we're preaching at them and telling them you need to be doing X, Y, and Z, but giving them opportunities as best we can to discover what happens if I don't. And through using case studies and using actual project-based learning, like we are doing a lot. And, and like you said, we get to do this because we're engineers doing a lot of project-based learning in the community where the students are already having to work on projects and see them through to the finish in such a way that they recognize if I listen well, I actually create an innovative project or product or service or solution that actually meets a tangible need rather than just solve it, the equation and design the perfect engineered product. Um, so we're, we're doing a lot, and I see this in a lot of the programs, um, uh, doing a lot to make sure that we're giving them the practical experiences to see it so that they know it and they've experienced it so that when they do run up against that boss, that's like, don't worry about that. It's not important. It's not technical. Let's move on that. They at least know maybe how to articulate their, their position and the value and the experience that they've had and why it's so critical to consider both. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you'll notice in our field, engineering leadership um, education, is that many of the professors are sort of professors of the practice. So both my current director, Emily Moore, and the former director, um, Doug Reeve, had experience working in professional practice prior to coming um, to the university to be professors. And so they've always been really deliberate about a relationship between um, workplaces, industry, and um, and the university. So we have a community of practice um, and there are a number of different organizations that value engineering leadership development. And then they bring their sort of young engineers, their sort of more senior engineers, their um, HR uh, folks and, and bring them together with some of our students. And then we have these, we used to have in-person conferences, but uh, COVID has, has switched that a little bit. So we've done sort of more online seminars, but we would come together and we'd really sort of learn sometimes across generational divides, sometimes across experiential divides, um, but that engagement is always happening prior to, to graduation. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's such an important aspect to, to make sure is, is introduced and, and reinforced early and often, you know, this, because it's, it's not just the, the, I don't want to say just the STEM part of being an engineer, but, you know, you're infusing that, that humanistic side, the human, the user experience and, um, you know, human behavior and, and all of those aspects. And so I just, it's really interesting to hear y'all share a little bit more about that and to see how much that was emphasized in the um, in the NDSL issue. So I want to want to ask you about one other component of this this issue, and I think that that's all we're gonna uh, probably have have time for. So so I was thinking back to what, one of the first opportunities I got to have as an assistant professor was to edit two symposia for the journal of leadership studies. So kind of a similar role of what y'all were doing of curating authors and and doing that whole thing. And so this was way back in. In 2014, I did a symposium on leadership studies across the disciplines. And one of the areas that I definitely knew was underexplored was the STEM fields. And so I uh, reached out through my network and had found a group of faculty at University of Central Florida. And they do this program called the, the ELI2, which is their Engineering Leadership and Innovation Institute. And so the article was infusing leadership education and the undergraduate engineering experience, uh, a framework from 
from their program. And um, they basically, I curated case studies, and this was one of them because I really appreciated faculty that were willing to share programmatic elements, pedagogical elements, things like that, because if they're one of the only programs in the country doing this type of work, they and if they're willing to share, then others can read this their article, take some of those ideas, infuse it into their programs. Because you know, while it's not rocket science, um, it can be hard to find good resources for putting together some of this stuff. And so, one of the things I loved about your issue was you had those seven case studies from the different types of engineering programs in the U.S. and Canada across the country, focusing on different components of the programs. Like, while I love the approach, why take that approach? You know, what, what do you think leadership educators could learn from, uh, from those seven case studies? So the reasoning behind that approach actually came from the fact that that's how our community has functioned for such a long time. Most of the scholarship that's out there on engineering leadership is scholarship of teaching and learning. It's more along the lines of this is the innovative thing I've been attempting in my program. I would love to see others use it. So it's been a community built on sharing um, it's only been in the last, I don't know, what would you say, Cindy, five to 10 years that we've begun to see the, the more traditional engineering education research in engineering leadership becoming a thing. And so because of that history within the community, it seemed really natural to try to bring those together so that there were tangible illustrations of what's possible when you're reading the special issue. We didn't want it to just be, here's a bunch of literature, good luck, come up with a an application on your own. We wanted it to be, here's the literature, but here are people that are actually doing the thing and be able to provide those tangible examples so that people can test it out at their own institution. One of the things we know from the years of being in this community is that no two programs are alike every program is different. And so it really speaks to the fact that people are trying to listen to their stakeholders at their institution and the needs of their students. But that means there's a lot of design work happening at each of these programs in order to get something that's gonna be functional and that'll work for them. In fact, that one of the chapters in, the, in this special issue is on program development and some of the questions that those directors may wanna be asking themselves and the considerations to be made. But the pedagogical approaches and the, the ways that we wanna to try to teach and the ways that we wanna develop our programs are so diverse that it was hard to summarize that in a single chapter without bringing in some of those stories so that you could see how the pieces work together. Because I, I could have put it together a chapter on funding, like how do programs fund their activities? Or It doesn't make sense if you don't see the rest of how the program is put together. And so it was helpful, I think, to have each of the programs share where they're at and then provide, we, we had each of them share some citations. And so if you wanted to dig more, you could go and read additional work from those programs on how they were designed even further. But we were doing our best to get a diverse set, different target audiences, different styles and approaches. So. Yeah, it's easier, I think, for readers to resonate with um, cases when they are contextualized in, you know, in this diversity of institutional settings. You know, if you're a very sort of large research one um, institute, you might look at some being more possible to get through than others. If you're sort of in a startup um, organization that really values teaching, there are other kinds of ways to go through it. If you're in a military institution, there might be some other ways. So 
having the case studies were not only tangible, as Megan said, and also obviously how, how we began as a community, but um, also deeply contextualized on purpose. Thank you all so much. You've shared so much good information with us, and we uh, appreciate uh, all of the conversation. Um, you shared so much, not just about leadership, but about engineering leadership education and how anyone who listens to this episode or grabs the, the special issue can uh, benefit from this. Is there anything else that we didn't ask that maybe you want to share? I need some help. My son is into Pokemon and I don't understand it. If somebody has like <laughs> really clear, what, he's six years old. He's like telling me these things and I can't understand. So send it, send it my way, please. Uh, we will post that on our Twitter. Anybody that can, you know, it's funny one year. So I used to run a, uh, I used to be in student affairs. We ran a residence uh, program for leadership students. So first year students, they could um, be in an LLC around leadership. And we did one of those Pokemon um chases you know where they have the app yeah we did we did that as a a a team builder like community exercise in the historic in old city the historic area so they're at the liberty bell with their phones scanning it for like pikachu and all of that stuff and i'm just like yeah i I, those students though i hate to say it one just graduated from law school so yeah right but i'm not that old i lie to my students and tell them i'm 25 but (laughs) if i can dig anything up we'll happily share that yes we need that support group for uh sons and daughters of engineers and uh for uh (laughs) mothers and fathers of pokemon uh interested (laughs) children that's right (laughs) megan anything on your end I think the only thing that's kind of been bouncing around in my head is I think Cindy and I have been really excited about this book. And we've heard from a lot of our colleagues about how excited they are because they, we so constantly get, um, people asking us like, what can we read? And so it is so nice to be like, I know, I know what you can read here. Start with this special issue. Um, but I think it, it really is a launching off point. There, our community and the emphasis on engineering leadership research is still so in its infancy that we're still trying to build up that community and help people begin to push themselves and be a little bit more intentional about why are they doing what they're doing in their particular programs and in their classrooms. We're, we're really trying to encourage our community to go beyond this just kind of intuitively makes sense to actually be able to justify and, and maybe do some of the assessment and the evaluation and make sure that what they're doing is actually having the impact that we're hoping to have. Um, and then ultimately share that insight so that others have an idea of like, what are some approaches that have some evidence behind them of success? So it's, it's exciting to see it. And I, I can't wait to see where we're going to be in another five or 10 years for sure. We have that LinkedIn site also where we're going to be, not everybody wants to read 200 pages. So on the off chance you don't, um, we'll have like sort of introductions to each of the chapters on our, our ASEE lead LinkedIn site. Love that. Perfect. We'll have to get those uh, URLs from, from you all so we can uh, put those in the show notes too. So well, Megan and Cindy, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. We're super grateful for your time and uh, your leadership, your contributions to the field of, of leadership education and engineering education, and definitely wish you the best of luck as you continue your work uh, with this community of practice and beyond. So thank you. Thank both of you, Lauren and Dan. And thanks to me. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Leadership Educator Podcast. 
Remember, you can download all our episodes on all available podcast platforms. And when you go, please make sure you rate us five stars, as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. That's right, Lauren. We also invite you to interact with us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod. That's L E A D E D U C A T O R P O D. And on LinkedIn by searching for the Leadership Educator Podcast. You can also follow us on LinkedIn by name. And on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura J-B. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And a wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matthew White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies now at the University of South Carolina. You can check him out at www.mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our listeners. During the season, you will hear episodes featuring International Leadership Association members working globally to drive leadership education. Visit ilaglobalnetwork.org slash podcast for more information and to join the association. And finally, this podcast would not be possible without our chief partner, the Association of Leadership Educators. Please check out the ALE and all it has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. We hope you will listen to our next episode wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.